on social media from time to time, there is in my feed a prevalence of these before and after memes. I know you've seen them before, and here's one, before and after the first day of kindergarten. Now, the thing that makes a before and after meme compelling is they have a snapshot before a transformative experience and then a snapshot after the transformative experience. And they also have these makeovers, as you can see on the screen, before the makeover and after the makeover. And it is the juxtaposition of these two snapshots that seems to draw us in before the transformative experience and after the transformative experience. Here's another one from an individual that was sharing her testimony at a camp meeting, and this is actually her, her name's Danielle, before Christ, and that's not from Halloween, this is actually the way that she presented herself, and in her testimony, she said it was because she felt dead inside. So her appearance portrayed that inner feeling, before Christ, after Christ. And for our study today, I wanted to go through Scripture and look at another before and after sequence, and it is before Pentecost and after Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit and after the Holy Spirit. When you look at the timeline of when Pentecost took place, Pentecost took place 50 days after the resurrection. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He rose on the third day, corresponding with the wave sheaf offering. And then 50 days after his resurrection was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was outpoured on his people. 50 days, a little less than two months, a dramatic before and after in the experience of the disciples. So let's go to the before, and I invite you to take out your study guides if you so desire. This is a brief outline of today's presentation. This is at the arrest of Jesus, just the night before the crucifixion, less than two months before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, and the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. Even though all of the disciples, especially Peter, had said, we will never desert you. We come to the other snapshot before the crucifixion, and this is during the trial of Jesus. Peter follows the rabble that had arrested Jesus to the court of Ananias. I don't know if I said that right. Ananias. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 74 through 75, you have this story where a servant girl recognizes the face of Peter 
that is being illuminated by the fire, and she says, hey, aren't you a Galilean, one of the followers of Jesus? And then he denies him once, denies him twice, and on the third time, just to make sure that no one had any doubts that he was not a follower of Jesus because the disciples were known for their purity of speech, and Peter was a sailor, in his prior profession. So he said some things that would remove all doubt that he was a follower of Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verse 74 through 75. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. This was the lowest moment in Peter's experience. Public denial laced with expletives. In Luke's account, you have another detail that is added, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Here's a detail that is not in the other account, that when Peter was saying those words and denying Christ, and it says that while he was still speaking, so this is concurrent with what he's saying. As he's saying all these things in denial of Jesus, while he's saying them, the rooster crows, and in that moment, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. They make eye contact. It's so tense, you could cut it with a knife. All these expletives, I do not know the man. The rooster crows. Jesus turns, looks at Peter. What was in that look? What did the expression of Jesus look like? Have you ever been in a situation as a child, in a public scene, and you are not behaving, and then your parents give you one of those looks? You know what those looks are? You better shape up or you're going to get into some trouble looks. You know, those looks like, you know, better shape up, and sometimes we imagine that the character of God is a certain way, and so what would that look have been like? Now, Jesus could have given him a very stern look, like, what's the matter with you? How dare you deny me publicly in front of all those people? Clean up your language. One of those looks like, hey, come on, shape up. You're going to be one of the leaders of our church. He could have given him any sort of look, and it could have been argue that it would have been justifiable. Now, the Desire of Ages paints this picture, page 713 and 714, while the degrading oaths were fresh upon Peter's lips 
and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked full upon the poor disciple. She goes on. At the same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to his masters. They make eye contact. In that gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. Wow. Open denial. And yet, no anger there in the countenance of Jesus. This is exactly the posture of God when we mess up. Amen? Not just mess up, but mess up big time. Jesus looks. No anger there. Just pity and sorrow. She goes on, the sight of that pale, suffering face, those quivering lips, the look of compassion and forgiveness pierced his heart like an arrow. We go to our final snapshot before Pentecost, John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. The disciples deserted and denied Jesus because they were afraid. So here is the snapshot of the disciples just two months before Pentecost, under two months before Pentecost, and I put some synonyms on the screen here and a definition at the end to describe the state of the disciples. Here it is, fearful, afraid, timid, cowardly, terrified, frightened, scared, shaking like a leaf, petrified. And I looked up the definition of afraid. Here it is. Unwilling or reluctant to do something for fear of the what? Of the consequences. The reason why Peter did not speak out and acknowledge that he was a follower of Jesus was that he feared the consequences. This is the state of the disciples less than two months before Pentecost, afraid, cowardly, terrified, frightened, and scared. All 12 of the disciples exhibited these characteristics. Now, let's fast forward to just a few days after Pentecost. Let's fast forward to Acts chapter 4. Verse 7 through 12, this is after the Holy Spirit has fallen in the upper room. They go out and preach the gospel. 3,000 souls are added to the church in one day. And Peter and John, a few days later, go to the temple and pray. You know the story. And there's a man that has been a cripple for 40 years sitting there. And he says to Peter and John, please give me some money. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus rise up and walk. And the man stands up, leaping and jumping and praising God. And the people that are there are astounded at this man because everyone knew who he was. And Peter preaches his second sermon, and 5,000 people 
are added to the church. They are arrested, held in prison overnight, and the next day they are taken before the religious leaders, the same religious leaders, by the way, that had crucified their master less than two months before. And look at the question that the Pharisees and the religious leaders ask in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? They don't even want to mention Jesus' name. They say, hey, by what power or by what name have you done this miracle? Now, this is a convenient time considering the characteristics of the disciples at this point to plead the fifth. No self-incrimination. Or to be evasive. Or to outrightly deny their association with Jesus. It's a convenient time for them to say, look, we did it in the name of God. And so they asked this question, look, whose name did you do this? And notice Peter responds in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there any salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says, we did it in the name of Jesus, who, by the way, you crucified. The religious leaders are astounded. They can't believe what they are hearing. And I have it in your study guide. Notice the response of the religious leaders in verse 13. Now when they, had, when they saw the what? The boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now there's other snapshots after the day of Pentecost, but here we see a dramatic shift in the experience of the disciples. And I have it here in the book Acts of the Apostles, page 64. There was no trace of fear in Peter's voice as he declared of Christ, this is the stone which has been set at naught of your builders, which has become the head of the corner, as the priests listened to the apostles' fearless words, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The disciples in less than two months go from absolute fear to resolute boldness. A dramatic before and after, before Pentecost, fearful, afraid, timid, cowardly, terrified, and frightened, and after Pentecost, bold, courageous, fearless, lion-hearted, heroic, 
indomitable. What made the difference? What was the transformative experience that took place within the two months that essentially, this is two different people, it seems like. They go from absolute terror to resolute boldness. Number one, they experience the love of God and for the first time in their lives, pleasing God became more important than pleasing men. And the other thing that happened was they received the Holy Spirit and thereby also received the presence of Jesus in their hearts. Transformation, the before and the after. This is a quote from Emilio Konechny. Why don't we succeed in turning this corrupt world upside down? Something has gone wrong with our convictions. We are afraid of conflicts. We are afraid of run-ins. We are afraid of difficulties. We are afraid of losing our job. We are afraid to lose our reputation. We are afraid to lose our lives. So we keep silent and hide. We are afraid to proclaim the gospel to the world in a loving yet powerful manner. If I can just give you a little bit of a window into some of the challenges in pastoral ministry. I think that one of the greatest temptations of the many temptations in pastoral ministry is to be a people pleaser. My ministerial director told me, David, you're going to please everyone in your church. And I perked up. I said, well, how do you do that? He said, just not at the same time. (laughs) He said, some people are happy when you come. Some people are happy while you're there. And some people are happy after you leave. (laughs) Now, there's nothing wrong with pleasing people inherently, but the challenge is when pleasing men takes precedence over pleasing God, that it becomes an issue. And early in my ministry, I found myself in a very challenging position, and I came to the conclusion that it is impossible to please everybody. Impossible. So I said, might as well please God. Because people are never going to be happy. If you're going around trying to please people, it is an endless pilgrimage in which you never arrive. Now, let's not just talk about pastoral ministry. This is not just a pastoral condition. This is a human condition. All of us naturally care a whole lot about what other people think of us. Don't we? And so we're always posturing. Even the clothes that we wear is in consideration of what people think. Even social media feeds 
this desire to be liked and to be promoted. And so we present ourselves in a certain way, a certain posture. We care a lot about what other people think of us. And when we boil it down as to the core reason why we are not bold for God is that we care more about what people think than what God thinks. And that's the rub. But here you see an experience of before And after, before the disciples, cowardly, afraid, fearful about what everyone would think about them. And then after Pentecost, the disciples cared most about what God thought. Whose opinion matters most? The greatest one of the world We know this quote. And men, by the way, is in the generic. This is from the early 19th century or late 19th century. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to the duty True to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. She says in another place, we should choose right because it is right and leave the consequences with God. We should choose right because it is right and leave the consequences with God. In Revelation chapter 14, it begins with fear God and give glory to Him. The fear of God is not that we're afraid of Him, but the fear of God is the opposite of the fear of man. Fear God means that we must come to the place in our experience by the grace of God where we are in the audience of one, where God's opinion where what God thinks matters most, and we center our lives around this reality. And holy boldness comes from an experience with Jesus to the point where his opinion takes preeminence. And our foremost thought process, the foremost thinking in our minds is how can I please God. This is a prayer that we can all pray. Peter and John are released from prison, and they go back to the other believers. They tell the story, and then they utter these words in a prayer. Acts chapter 4, the predominant theme is boldness when you look at it. Acts chapter 4, verse 29, here's the prayer of the early church after they have just been threatened by the religious leaders to stop preaching the name of Jesus. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal 
and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. In your study guide, we can pray and ask God for holy boldness. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, He enables us to be bold for God. In other words, boldness is not something that we need to conjure up. And by the way, this is holy boldness. I'm not saying be obnoxious. They say honesty without compassion is cruelty. This is not talking about going out there and being carnal and being bold and just speaking your mind. But this is talking about when God's name and God's glory is on the line that we are bold for Him. They pray this prayer, and this is the second outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. The first one came early in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and 2. But here it is in chapter 4, they are receiving threats and the natural human tendency is to shrink, but they pray to God and say, Lord, help us, and they pray and say, Lord, give us your boldness, and the Bible says that the house was shaken, and the Holy Spirit descended, and they went out to preach the Word of God with boldness. We live in an age where It is popular to be bold for every other cause. You name it. I'm not going to go through the list at the risk of offending somebody. You name it. Every depraved and just sinful cause, whether uplifting or not uplifting, in society today, people are bold with their beliefs. They just are out there parading and exhibiting behavior and saying, this is who I am, unflurling who they are for public spectacle and public view. This is the world that we live in. And yet, the Christian community has been marginalized and isolated to the place where in the face of this apparent boldness by the world, The Christian community, the Christian individuals are silent because I just don't want to offend anybody. Now, I'm not saying that we should be offensive, but it's getting to the place where we think twice before even saying a silent prayer in a public restaurant because we are so concerned about what other people think. God wants to free us from the slavery of other people's opinions and bring us to the place when we're filled with the Holy Spirit that we can speak the truth but in love and with boldness. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I want to read this.
paragraph that's in your study guide. I don't have it on the screen as we wrap up and close. And this is so beautiful because it nuances and balances out this notion of boldness and its place in the Christian experience. Acts of the Apostles, page 69. We are not required to defy authorities. Just in case you leave out of here with some different understandings about what we talked about here this morning. Our words, whether spoken or written, should be carefully considered lest we place ourselves on record as uttering that which would make us appear antagonistic to law and order. We are not to say or do anything that would unnecessarily close up our way. We are to go forward in Christ's name advocating the truths committed to us. If we are forbidden by men to do this work, then we may say, as did the apostles, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. There is the balance. Holy boldness is tactful, it's loving, but there comes a certain time when we can't help but speak about the nature and the love of God. One last quote before we pray and close. This is from the Desire of Ages talking about the Holy Spirit and the essential nature of the Holy Spirit. Desire of Ages, page 672. This promised blessing, the Holy Spirit, claimed by faith brings all other blessings in its train. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to not only be with us, but also to be in us and to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Bring us to the place where we are so in love with you that your opinion matters most. Free us from the slavery of pleasing men more than pleasing God. Help us by your grace and may you work in and through us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.